Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University. Now your host, Doug Sweeney. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, and I'm joined today by the Reverend Dr. Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College and last fall's Reformation Heritage Lecturer here at Beeson Divinity School. Dr. Truman is a well-known public intellectual. His most recent book is entitled Strange New World. One of his best-known books is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Uh, Dr. Truman, I am pleased to say, is a well-known and very proficient church historian, so we may ask him a church history question or two as we proceed here, but uh, Dr. Truman, thank you very much for being our Reformation lecturer this year and for being on the podcast today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Doug. Thanks very much for inviting me to give the lectures and for inviting me onto the podcast. I imagine many of our listeners know about you already, but just for those who don't, why don't we start by introducing you to them? Let me ask you just a little bit about your childhood, how you came to faith in Christ, and how you decided that the Lord was leading you into ministry. Yeah, well, I was born in uh, near Birmingham, which is right in the center of England. Uh, and when I was pretty small, six, six years, seven years old, I think, my parents moved to Gloucestershire over in the West Country of England. So most of my childhood memories are associated with Gloucestershire, which is a very rural uh, and pretty idyllic part of the country. The Cotswolds uh, was where I, I, I grew up. Uh, I came to faith. I went to the local grammar school, state grammar school, and a couple of my good friends there were Christians, and they witnessed to me over the years. And then when I was 17, one of them took me to hear Billy Graham preach. He was on a, a big uh, rally in England. I think it was 1984, Mission England 1984. Heard Billy Graham preach, became interested in the gospel. Uh, looking back, I don't think I was converted at that point. I started going to church. It was really when I went up to college, uh, the local Baptist minister gave me a copy of J.I. Packer's a little book, God's Words, and it was reading Dr. Packer that really made the gospel very, very clear to me. I, I didn't have a, a Damascus Road dramatic conversion experience that I can point to, but over a period of time, I became uh, convinced of my own sinfulness, convinced of uh, uh, the importance, the significance of Christ's work, and, and came to, to trust him by faith. So that's my, my, my sort of Christian testimony. Call to ministry was a lot longer in coming. Uh, I served as an elder uh, at a Presbyterian church in Aberdeen in the late 1990s, and then moved to the United States to take a job at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia in 2001. And while I was at Westminster Seminary, my wife and I were members of a, a local Orthodox Presbyterian church. And without going into all the details, the church uh, found itself without a pastor and without the ability to pay for a full-time pastor. And so I uh, stepped into the breach, so to speak, at that point. I, again, I'm, I'm sort of English. I'm not very mystical. There was no inner call to the ministry. It was well, there's an external call here. I have the skills necessary to, to help the church out. So I, I pastored a church in Philadelphia for six years, my, my final six years actually in Philadelphia. I was not only a professor at the seminary, but also pastoring 
a local Orthodox Presbyterian church. So that's my my story in a nutshell. Married two very grown-up children now. They they left the home long ago. Uh, so my wife and I had a rather blissful uh, era of liberation, shall we say? Hence yeah. her ability to travel with me to places like Beeson when I when I lecture there. Yeah, we are empty nesters as well. Uh, I mean, that's a real thing. Your life really does change when your kids fly It does. It gets a lot cheaper and a lot freer. It's, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you felt uh, like you were supposed to become a church historian, historical theologian. You, you tell us how you like to uh, sort of define that before you felt like uh, you were going to be a pastor. Being a pastor yes. was a, sort of a byproduct of your position at a seminary and desire to be usefulness to your denomination? Yes, my my original academic degree, uh, I studied classics at the University of Cambridge. So I was a classicist, really with a focus on, on ancient history and Latin poetry, of all things. And in my final year, I was wondering what to, to do with the rest of my life. And, and I'd become very interested in church history. I, I didn't come from a Christian background. So reading uh, the story, you know, biographies of Martin Luther, John Calvin, St. Augustine, these figures, that was the way that I was learning in many ways about the Christian faith. And because I had a natural bent towards history anyway, the two things kind of flowed together. And uh, on a whim almost, I put in some applications for postgraduate, uh, for uh, doctoral, uh, uh, doctoral positions and was blessed. I, I was going to say fortunate enough, I suppose, Piously, I was blessed enough. I, I was fortunate enough to, to not only get offered a place at the University of Aberdeen to study church history, but they also offered me a, a full scholarship to do it as well. So I moved from being a classicist to being a 16th and then 16th and 17th century uh, Protestant thought guy at my my graduate in my graduate studies. Yeah, one of the interesting things about you is you've taught in a variety of uh, context. As a young man, you did some teaching in a secular university context, yeah. and I think I'm right about that. Then Westminster Seminary for quite a while. Yeah. Now you're at a Christian liberal arts college. Is there anything that ties those things together, or you've just been trying your best to kind of follow God's leading and, and do the right next thing? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think I, I always had a, a great love of teaching. I, I enjoy teaching. I enjoy interacting with students. Uh, the move from I taught at the University of Nottingham, then the University of Aberdeen, which you say were both broadly secular state universities in the UK. I think moving to Westminster was very much wanting. I wanted to teach students for whom history was not just interesting because it was history, but interesting because they could see it having uh, an impact upon their Christian lives and, and ministry. And I did that for 16 years. Then I, I, I had a sort of hiatus year when I was a research fellow at Princeton University, another secular university, of course. Yeah. And then I took the job at Grove. I, uh, the president at Grove approached me, said he would be interested in talking about a job. It was the right time in my life. And I'd always loved, I did love teaching undergraduates. And in some ways, the attraction of Westminster had been, I wanted to teach people things that were existentially significant to them, rather than just being teaching them just for credits. Mm -hmm. The attraction of Grove over Westminster was very much the battle for young minds. Uh, oh. I've become convinced that the real key educational period for young people is 18 to 22. It's the college years. And that's when it's 
so critical to for them to be exposed to good ideas and so that was the attraction of grove it was okay i've I, I've, I've I've done a lot of teaching of pastors, but maybe the 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 twilight of my career would be well spent teaching younger people. You know this, Douglas. You know when you teach at seminary, it's great. You but you're by and large teaching people better reasons to believe what they believe already, mm-hmm. which is a very very worthwhile calling. But there's also a calling of people have just left home. Maybe they're Christians, but they're having to own the faith for themselves. Maybe they're not Christians and they're wrestling with how do I think about the world? That's all going on between the ages of 18 and 22. And that's what makes undergraduate teaching such a consistent uh, delight, particularly at a place like Grove, where we don't have a lot of radical student activism. We by and large have students who are there to learn and to, to think about things. Yeah. Well, you have me wondering whether the the, the logic that you've just described um, that's led you to Grove City is a logic that's similar to the one that um, has helped you make decisions about the kind of writing projects you want to engage in. It's you're, another thing that's interesting about you is you've done the standard church historical writing and publishing, but especially in recent years, you've kind of broadened out and written some big books on big contemporary topics. You've addressed them in a way that could only be done if you're a proficient historian, but you're not really doing traditional historiography. You're making some big claims. You're offering some big explanations. Why Why have you done that? On one hand, it, the answer might be obvious. You, you wanna reach people and there's some big things you wanna say, but have you struggled with that? How to balance the more technical stuff that the academics are supposed to do with these big books that uh, you're becoming very well known for these days? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's a sense in which when I when I hit fifty, round about the age of fifty, there was a okay. I've I've pretty much made my contribution to to sort of strict academic stuff by this point. I I could go on producing articles and books that are essentially footnotes to what I've already done. But I, I think I've pretty much said everything academically. Secondly, I've always been somewhat undisciplined in my interests. I've got the attention span of a squirrel, I think. You know, we all know characters who they spend their careers seemingly writing the same book again and again and again. Once I've written a book, I get kind of, okay, I've done that. I'm sort of bored with that. What what could I move on to next? So there's been that always wanting something new and interesting. I think when I was a pastor, that really made me realize that there were such significant things going on in our culture at this point that I personally wanted to try to understand what they were. And I don't know how you are, Douglas, but I, I tend to think best when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of, I, I don't think that yes. fast. I type with two fingers. So I type slow, but I type at the speed, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's great to work through some of these things on, on paper. And I was also struck that very little seemed to be being done for some of the most pressing issues that pastors are facing. I think a lot of pastors, and I include myself in this when I was pastoring, woefully ill-equipped to deal with some of the most pressing issues. And issues are developing so quick that it, it, I, I understand why guys in their 40s, 50s, and 60s aren't spotting them because the world has changed so rapidly. We're not aware of, of, of these things. So I wanted to do something that would allow pastors to, and, and other Christians, 
to get a better handle on on why, for example, young, good young Christian people uh, don't necessarily think the Bible teaches the sexual ethics that guys of our generation think it obviously teaches. Yes. The young people who struggle with what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? Many of them, they're not rebelling against biblical authority. They just they're coming at the Bible with a very different framework that leaves them very confused about what the Bible says. And I wanted to help those in, in positions of authority, educational authority within the church, understand and perhaps sympathize somewhat with, with, what's, with, with the struggles that our culture is creating for young people and for families. So that was, was, was driving things as well. Well, the things you've written, especially in the last several years, uh, about our contemporary cultural situation and strange new world and the rising triumph of the modern self, have been so powerful. And you've had lots of readers, of course, but I don't want to assume that all the people listening to this podcast know what you've been arguing in those books. Would you mind giving us just a brief thumbnail sure. sketch of the things you've been working on recently in those books? Sure. Well, the, the, it... The big book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, really arose out of my curiosity about why the statement, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, why these statements had come to make sense, not simply to people who are deeply immersed in gender theory, not simply to people who are you know, students of Judith Butler at uh, the University of uh, California in Berkeley, but to the ordinary men and women in the streets. Why is it that, you know, I bet if you randomly walked up to somebody on the streets of, of Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or Birmingham and asked them, you know, what is a woman? Why is it that quite a number of them these days might really struggle to offer a, a cogent answer to that? And I was sharing this with Professor Robert George from Princeton uh, when he happened to be visiting Westminster. And he said to me, you should apply for a Madison Fellowship, come to Princeton and spend a year thinking about that. So I was very blessed to, to have a year at Princeton to wrestle with that, that idea. And, and the, the big book, uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and then the shorter version, Strange New World, are really an attempt to condense my reflections on that down into a form that, that, that people can read and find helpful. My conclusion was essentially this, that these things that seem to be happening so fast in our culture, particularly relating to sexual morality, sexual behavior, and thinking about gender, though they seem to be happening very, very fast before our eyes, one of the reasons for the speed of that is that the roots of them are very deeply embedded within our culture, and that certain things have become intuitive in Western culture over the last three or 400 years that have culminated in something like transgenderism being very plausible. One of the things that's taken place in Western culture is we've come to grant more and more authority to our feelings. Uh, how we feel has become much more significant for who we think we are than it would have been in times past. Another thing that's happened is that external authority has become less and less plausible as a way of understanding who we are. Another thing that's happened is we've come to start prioritizing the sexual dimension of our inner feelings as determining who we are. And that leads to, a, to another development, which uh, is that we come to see sex as something very political. When one looks at the Bible and you see 
sex being dealt with in the Bible. It's generally dealt with in terms of behavior. You can do these kind of activities, you can't do those. You can do this activity in this context, but not in that context. Sex is behavior. And Western societies, by and large, have put together law codes on that basis. So some things you can do, some things you can't do. When you realize that we've started to think about sex as identity, as something we are rather than something we do, then those sexual codes become not so much codes about behavior as codes about who society will and will not allow you to be. And that's very political. And that helps understand, helps us understand why, in many ways, the most private act that takes place between two people has become the most pressing public policy issue of the last 10, 15, 20 years. So my books are really an attempt to, to, to set the sexual revolution against the background of a much bigger, if you want to use the term, revolution of how we think about ourselves and how we think about what it means to be a human being and what identity means. Well, and your diagnosis has rung true with lots of people. Uh, very helpful books, Carl. Thank you very much for them. I, I'm imagining I'm one of the VEASAN podcast listeners uh, who knows a little bit, uh, maybe from experience about what you're describing and maybe even has read a little bit about it, but is plagued with what to do about it. Yeah. Maybe, is there, a, is there a, a word of prescription that you might offer for parents, for pastors, for ordinary Christians? Obviously, yeah, this yeah. is a huge, complex set of issues, yeah. but uh, at, at, insofar as you're ready to provide some guidance and uh, coaching, what kind of guidance do you want to offer us? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and as an individual, I'm, you know, I only have very limited competence to offer sort of proposals and guidance on this, but I'll offer some general principles. I think, first of all, it's very important, particularly in our current moment of very polarized politics within the culture, to make an important distinction between what I would regard as the, as the ideology of the LGBTQ plus movement and the individuals who are caught up in it. And I would say we need to be you know, we need to be electing the right people. We need to be pushing for the right legislation on the on the front, on the ideological front. We need to realize that we are up against, in some cases, some very evil people who would, would really like to transform society in ways that, that will not lead to uh, human uh, benefits and flourishing at all. Having said that, we mustn't allow our opposition to that to to lead us to dehumanize the people who are struggling with this, even perhaps some of the people we vigorously disagree with on this. Uh, every human being is made in God's image. Uh, every person struggling with gender dysphoria or struggling with same-sex attraction or affirming gender dysphoria or affirming their same-sex attraction is a human being. And we need to treat them as, uh, as human beings. So in terms of you know, talking to parents, talking to friends, first thing I'd want to say is, Keep channels of communication open. Um, you know, even, even if you're tempted to, to cut off communication with your friends or your relatives for whom this is the issue, keep channels of communication open. If you're a pastor or if you're an, you know, just an ordinary Christian and somebody walks into your room, your office, your study and says, I need to tell you something. I, I think I'm a, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. What should be your first response? I think your first response is sit and listen, because the first thing you have to do with that person is show them. You can't just tell them this. You have to show them that you care about them and you think that they're a real person made in God's image. 
So my first strategy, my first tactic or strategy in these situations is always to say to the person something like, well, tell me, why do you feel that way? Yeah. How did this start? Give, give me the story of your life relative to this particular issue. Thirdly, I think uh, we all need to pray. You know, there's that, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying here that people struggling with LGBTQ stuff are demon possessed. I'm not saying that. But when Jesus is faced with some you know, difficult cases, he'll say this type comes out only with prayer and fasting. Uh, and I think when we're dealing with, uh, we all need to pray for wisdom in these situations. And one of the difficulties of giving advice is there's no one, you know, as in many pastoral issues, there's no one size fits all uh, approach. We need to pray for wisdom in these situations. We need to be encouraging, particularly if they're professing Christians, the people who are struggling with this, to, to be in church, to be under the proclamation of the word, to be taking the sacraments, the things that the Lord has appointed uh, for uh, working uh, within our lives. If we have friends who say have family members that have come out as trans or something, we need to be there to support them. Um, don't cut them off. Chatting to parents whose kids have come out as trans, the only, the nearest thing I can liken it to in my own pastor experience is talking to parents whose children have died. You know, when somebody comes and says, my son now says he's my daughter, you look into their eyes and you see there what you see when somebody tells you that their child has got terminal illness or their child has died and your heart just breaks for them. So be there to support the families. If it's your family struggling with this, uh, seek out support. There are places online where people who are facing these issues in their own families can go for support. Uh, if you're bereaved, it's intuitive uh, that we, we go to, a, to hang out with people or to speak to people who've gone through the same thing to get support. I think when your child comes out as trans or gay in the Christian community, there can be a shame attached to that that leads you to avoid that sort of thing. I say, don't avoid it. Seek out help. I have no idea what it's like to have a child come out as trans. So, uh, you know, people like me can, we can offer the, the, the objective advice, but the real empathy comes from those who are going through the same thing. So I would say all of those things, uh, many of them are just common sense, but all of those things I think come into play when you are struggling with this yourself or when you're trying to help a friend who's who's going through it. That's great advice. Let me shift gears briefly uh, and remind our listeners uh, that you gave the Reformation Heritage Lectures last fall. By the time they're listening to this interview, these uh, lectures will be available online through our website, our, our Visa YouTube page, uh, and they were fantastic. And we want our listeners to tune in and listen to the lectures themselves can you give them just a one-minute teaser? What what did you do for the students and the faculty when you were here in October on those lectures? Yeah. Well, what I what I didn't want to do was just another. Hey, Luther nailed the ninety-five theses to the castle door in in fifteen seventeen. I wanted to do something. I wanted to try to bring, if you like, the two spheres of my 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 academic work together: the the work on the self and the work on the Reformation. And, if you know, if you if you read any, in any depth in, in contemporary Reformation scholarship, you, your listeners will know that Catholics in particular tend to blame Protestants for some of the kind of problems I'm talking about. It might sound a bit bizarre to think that there's a connection between Luther and transgenderism, but the Reformation really does 
you know, it does stand in some ways as the as the fountainhead or the source for for some of the issues that have risen in modernity relative to how we think about ourselves. So what I wanted to do was lay out in, in brief compass the case against the Reformation on that front and, and point to the various things that certain Catholic uh, scholars will say about the Reformation, and then offer some pushback. And in offering the pushback, also point people today towards some of the kind of practical solutions I've just mentioned, and you know, that actually you know, the church remains important in Protestantism. Corporate gathering of the church remains important in Protestantism. Liturgy remains important. What we hear, what we sing, how the community forms us, all of these things remain the same. So that was what I was trying to do in those two lectures, state the problem and then offer maybe not a complete solution, but hopefully enough for the students or the listeners to to have some some things to go away and think about relative to to formulating a solution. Yeah, they really were fantastic. Thank you, Carl, for doing that. Uh, so, what are you writing now? You got a new book project underway? <laughs> well, I always do cheerful projects these days. I've just wrapped up uh, a little book for Broadman and Holman. Uh, during the heat of all the critical theory stuff a couple of years ago, B and H approached me and said, "We want somebody to write a book." that we can recommend to undergraduates or seminary students, introducing them to critical theory. And I said, sure, but I want to do it on early critical theory, the, the Frankfurt, the early Frankfurt school, uh, not the critical race theory. I've said all I want to say on that. I don't want to have my head blown off once more by people. So I've just finished, uh, it'll be about a 200 page book, uh, introducing readers to critical theory in a very expository way. It's not a polemic. It's uh, okay, this is what they say, uh, you know, what do they get right? What do they get wrong? It, it's that kind of thing. And at the same time, I, I've been writing a book that I'm just about to 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 wrap up the manuscript on on, on nihilism in modern life. <laughs> so the, the, the cheerful things, you know, transgenderism, <laughs> critical theory, nihilism, you know, it, it's getting bleaker, I think, as, as the years go by. It's a good job I'm a pretty cheerful guy by nature. <laughs> we'll look forward to them. Uh, Dr. Truman, we always end our interviews by asking our guests uh, what God is doing in their lives these days. So you've been a faithful Christian, a pastor, a, a seminary teacher, a Christian college teacher, etc. After all these years, is God still doing some things in your life? Is he teaching you anything new these days? Yes, I think um, I feel very blessed to teach where I teach. I, I teach great students. I have wonderful colleagues. Uh, I'm, I'm at a, you know, Without wishing to insult anywhere else I've worked, I, I'm certainly enjoying my professional life more than ever. That's a great blessing, and I don't, uh, uh, I don't take that for granted. That is the Lord's blessing in my life. I delight in my family. My wife and I spend more time together now than ever before, and we have not only two sons who both uh, both walking with the Lord. We have a wonderful daughter-in-law for who the same is true, and we have a little granddaughter. So. We rejoice in our, our growing family and, and in the new life. Uh, though, as a you know, given that I'm a cheerful pessimist, I remember when I first held my granddaughters, my first thought were, this is a great blessing. My second thought was, oh no, I've got to worry about the next 70 years now. <laughs> um, and in terms of things to pray for, I, I the longer the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize that the most important thing to pray for, I think, in anybody's life is that they finish well. I'm acutely aware of the fact that a lifetime of, of 
of ministry can be destroyed in a moment of indiscretion or in a failure to to guard one's heart against sin so i you know if listeners want to pray for me my request would be pray that i finish well uh, um, i think and I, I think of dr lloyd jones i think of dr packer uh, i was not in many ways there, there were many things that the great tim keller said and did that i would have had questions about but all of those men finished well uh, the lord brought them to the end and they were faithful servants to the end and on all i would wish is that I too, uh, well, people, hopefully, I won't be able to say it, but after I'm gone, people will be able to say, well, he, he finished well. And that, that's my real prayer request. Listeners, please pray for Dr. Carl Truman. He serves as professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. Uh, we are pleased to say he was our Reformation lecturer here at Beeson this year. Uh, he's a widely published, very learned uh, thoughtful man. Please uh, tune in to his Reformation Heritage Lectures on the Beeson YouTube site. Uh, we remind you, please pray for our students here at Beeson. We just graduated another class last week, and they're off doing ministry uh, all over the world right now. Uh, we love you. We thank you for tuning in. tuning in. We're praying for you, and we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from the campus of Samford University. Our theme music is by Advent Birmingham. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our engineer is Rob Willis, and our show host is Doug Sweeney. For more episodes and to subscribe, visit beesondivinity.com slash podcast. You can also find the Beeson Podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you.